It's the e-commerce master plan podcast here to help you grow your e-commerce business faster and more efficiently by cutting through the hype to bring you inspiration and guidance from the e-commerce sector and beyond. Here's your host, Chloe Thomas. Hello, master plan world. Welcome to our latest show. It's a pleasure to have you all out there listening. As you probably already know by now, I'm Chloe Thomas, the creator of the e-commerce master plan. I'm an author, speaker and consultant, and I focus on e-commerce business and strategy. If you want to join the chat about any of our episodes, then head over to our Facebook group, which you can find via ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash Facebook. I'm really excited to bring you today's special guest because over the last four years, Dan Fagella has built his business Science of Skill to over $2 million in annual sales and sold it for over $1 million. Now, Science of Skill is an American online-only retailer of self-protection products and educational programs. Today, we're going to be discussing both balancing physical and virtual products as well as how Dan has achieved that huge growth in his business. Little spoiler for you, this is going to be heavy on dashboards and discipline. Um, So hello, Dan. Hello, Chloe. Man, that was a fantastic sum up of what we're going to cover today. I could never have done it better. Well, I try, you know, give people the warning and hope they they haven't turned off yet, quite frankly. That was good. So um, I've just, as you, as you said, I've just given the listeners like the quickest overview of you, your business and what you're up to. Yeah. But how did you get started off in e-commerce? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I, I was running a martial arts gym, Chloe, when I was in undergraduate school. So when I was still in college, just because all my friends were getting jobs, you know, delivering pizza or selling insurance or something. And I just thought that sounded horrible. So I was teaching martial arts um, and uh, I poured my life savings into expanding to about 4,500 square feet. I was like 20, uh, 22 or 23 at the time. And we actually had a roof collapse, um, that, that the landlords for some reason couldn't cover. And I think we just didn't have the money to get a lawyer to like make them cover it or something. So, um, I I did actually make it through that. I did continue to grow and sell that company. That was the first business I started and the first business, uh, I sold. But, uh, when the roof collapsed, it became very evident to me, uh, Chloe, that I would need to have revenue streams that weren't uh, dependent on things that had roofs. So um, <laughs> we were doing, I was doing a lot of martial arts competitions, a lot of national competitions, a lot of seminars uh, up and down the East Coast and in uh, Oklahoma and all over the place for, for jiu-jitsu and, and skill development, um, cognitive science of skill development at colleges and stuff. And so I, I started taking a lot of kind of presentation work uh, – bundling that into videos and pairing it with kind of PDF materials to help people learn um, and saw if I could kind of sell it online. So initially it was two things. It was number one, I didn't want to depend on brick and mortar to, mm-hmm. to uh, you know, pay pay for, for school. Uh, number two, um, I needed a location independent business because I knew eventually I was going to move out here uh, to Silicon Valley to work on artificial intelligence and neurotech kind of media stuff, which is what I do now. So I knew I needed to be location dependent and I had a big scare. That's how I get into it. That's some pretty serious forward planning. Yeah. I respect that. So, um, so when you, you started off with those courses and then you added in the physical products as well, creating science of skill. Yes, yes. Actually, so it started off as just educational programs uh, to begin with. And it was entirely actually me, which is kind of a silly thing. If you want to build a business to sell, you need to make sure you are not the uh, the smiling face of it. Oh, yeah. But initially, it was just me. It was like, hey, 
I'm going to need another 500 bucks to, uh, to make payroll for my martial arts academy. And things, things were a little better about three months after the roof collapsed. But, you know, those couple months were pretty rough months, Chloe, especially as a, a guy who had just dumped his life savings into that expansion. Um, and uh, so, yeah, initially it was just me selling basically my own seminars, my own uh, skill development um, presentations and kind of talks at, at colleges and stuff in video format slash PDF format. And then eventually as we grew, yeah, we added physical stuff about probably uh, a year into the business or so. We started moving into physical goods as well. Cool. And, and at the point you sold, was it mainly about the virtual products or about the um, the physical products? You know, it was actually mainly about both. I'll explain how. Um, so it, it, it was the physical products. By the time we sold, we were selling mostly to the self-protection market. So when we sold, we had uh, 12 different instructors who had recorded programs from us uh, across Europe and the United States. It was very much not about me anymore. There was really uh, – I wasn't even mentioned on the website anymore. Um but uh, the physical products, uh, which in our case were tactical folding knives or DVD programs or things like that, were often going to be the first uh, sale for a customer. Like they were oh, the really? thing that would entice them to to initially – yeah, so uh, physical got the credit card out faster for our audience. Uh, our audience was a little bit older, older males you know, over the age of 50, over the age of 60 actually as it turned out. I didn't I – didn't, target that by the way that that just kind of bubbled up from our own market research and our own assessment of our buyers See, now, uh, we do a lot of phone calls now you say yeah. who, who like the buyers are i'm like okay now i understand why the physical products would be the first to sell but yeah. you, would, you would have thought in that yeah. space it's like people they they buy the course and then they realize they need the products not the other way around so that's yeah, quite it, phenomenal it was totally kind of the other way around yeah so so they would we had a kind of a monthly membership uh, subscription program. We had a couple of those actually for self-protection um, kind of instruction. And a lot of the time this would be bundled with physical programs or it would be sold along with some other digital program or something. And that stuff actually, you know, we didn't really sell those or make uh, a ton of bucks from those normally until after we closed a front-end physical sale and we gave people uh, an opportunity to test the education emailed them after they bought uh, the physical stuff about the educational stuff. So um, in terms of audience exposure, we did a lot of paid media. Um, paid media usually converted far better uh, with physical goods. And then on the back end, our margins were much thicker uh, with the educational and digital products. And so that's what we did on the back end. So we created kind of an engine where both ended up actually being quite critical. Well, I'm going to come back to that a little bit later because we're oh, cool. that yeah, really sure. dives into our to our dashboarding and our rigor around the business. But yeah, I just time. want to because I usually start off by just making sure that everybody understands the business that you were you were running. So let's just tick a couple of boxes. So um, you yeah. at the point where you sold it, Science of Skill was based in the US and selling globally. I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, it was based technically nowhere, but I had to list an office and I used where I lived. Uh, I think I used Sonoma. Now I'm, I'm right in the middle of San Francisco, uh, again, working on artificial intelligence, which is the reason I sold that company so I could self-fund it. But uh, yeah, we were technically based in San Fran, but we had uh, you know a couple employees, a couple contractors scattered across the East Coast in terms of our workers. No, no office, uh, no physical space. Um, and yeah, we were selling 93 or 94% of our sales were in the U S. Um, another handful out where you are in the UK, a uh, little bit in Australia, 
a decent amount in Canada. And then, you know, every now and again, we had the weird stuff like, you know, Greece and Brazil and whatnot. Um, but that, that was, it was really like, you know, well over 90% uh, in, in the U.S. Okay, cool. And uh, we talked about the product, but what platform um, were you selling on? Were you like on a Shopify, a Magento or something a bit more, more yeah, bespoke? Yeah. Um, we were actually, we got started in the early days. So my martial arts gym, uh, which was the business before this, one of the reasons I was actually able to sell that is because um, the marketing activity, which is what I was kind of responsible for at that gym when I started it, um, was all automated with Infusionsoft. So Infusionsoft is kind of an e-commerce slash marketing automation platform. And I got started with Infusion a long time ago for the martial arts gym. Helped me step away from that business, uh, you know, uh, get a down payment and eventually kind of move all the way away from that business. And so I was actually on Infusionsoft with this business too. So we never went the Shopify route. We were still at the time of, of the sale running it through Infusion. Uh, when we get our sales up to, you know, 400 grand a month, when the new buyers get there, they're pretty well aware we're going to have to grow out of Infusionsoft, but wow, so you, uh, the actual software. So, yeah. so it's all using kind of the e-commerce site that sits on the back of the actual Infusionsoft program. Yeah. Wow. Infusion gives you order forms and upsell opportunities and a CRM when people purchase stuff. And then you can tie that to marketing automation. So normally you've got to kind of Frankenstein a couple software together in order to do your processing, uh, have, have upsells and do email automations based on all that stuff. Infusion does let you do it all in one. It, it's it's got its pros and its cons, but for what we were doing, it ended up being a pretty nice way to kind of save on the technical kludge that is often in the back end of people who do the kind of marketing automation uh, segmentation work that we do. So, wow, you're the you're the first person I've heard of who's taken Infusionsoft to quite that level with that type of product. Yeah, nobody nobody does. It's 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 normally you know pretty much pretty much amateur stuff. Um, but yeah, we were kind of pushing the, the edges of infusion. Mm -hmm. Like I said, um, if, if the new buyers get the sales up to 300 or 400,000 a month, uh, just based on transaction volume and what infusion can do and where it starts to break, uh, in terms of email deliverability, they're going to have to move to another platform. But yeah, to get to where we got to, um, you know, which, which was, you know, a couple million top line, it actually did hold together luckily. So um, nice. but, uh, but yeah, that, that's where we grew the whole thing up. Cool. And then the team that you're running, you've already said that it was all, um, kind of like virtual location wise, but did you have actual yeah. employees or was it all kind of yeah. a, a hybrid of freelancers and other and virtual assistants and that kind of thing? Really good question. Uh, so, uh, we had two employees at the time of sale, only one of whom was full-time. So we had one full-time employee, uh, $2 million top line revenue. That was very much by design. Uh, so mm -hmm. the martial arts gym was like, I don't know, by the time we sold it, it was like a little bit less than a quarter million dollar a year business. Uh, and we had like five or six employees or something, Whoa. you know, it was like crazy. Uh, they were all like young and I was still taking home some bucks and, and, uh, and was still able to, to, you know, get a sale and get some, some dollars down on that sale to help me start the e-commerce thing. But, um, but, uh, you know, I knew if I'm, if I'm going to eventually get a cash out that's substantial and, and if I'm going to be location independent, I don't want an office full of people who have to unlock the door every morning and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. so I built science skill to be the opposite of the martial arts gym, uh, which the, the gym, uh, can, can get to decent margins when you really start to make the most of every bit of square 
square mm-hmm. footage. And it's, it's not the worst business in the world, but uh, I definitely wanted to build something different. So yeah, so by design, we had one single full-time employee uh, who worked you know, two to three times more hours than, than me. A really important guy by the name of Tim, who's like a good buddy of mine and did an excellent job. Um, one part-time employee and then two other contractors. And then we had a couple like folks in India help with data entry and graphics and, and some development. But um, yeah, it was, it was uh, one full-time employee and then otherwise a fistful of 21-year-olds who were still in college uh, who were able to kind of run the operations while I was off uh, here in, in the Bay Area uh, doing my next business. Okay, cool. So uh, just uh, just because people will be shouting this at their, whatever they happen to be listening to this on, that one full-time person that you decided you definitely needed, what did you have them doing? Yep. Were they on marketing? Were they on managing oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. teams? Or what, what was kind of like such an important thing you had to have that person bolted into the business? Great question. Uh, I, I think that's pertinent. Um, the most important thing that Tim was doing uh, is Tim was actually handling sales. So uh, before I sold my martial arts gym, I had to train the right-hand man who bought it out for me uh, how to do all the sales, completely unplug myself from sales. It's mm-hmm. one of the big things when people sell a business. If you're the guy that's responsible for sales, you, you can't sell your business. So um, two or two and a half years into the, the company, I started training Tim uh, not just on copywriting but on managing our marketing budget managing our affiliate calendar, uh, and really becoming responsible for sales. So most of our sales, uh, Chloe, were coming from uh, affiliate traffic, so people who would be paid for every sale that they mm-hmm. made for us, and also on paid email media. So we would purchase uh, a sponsorship of a large email blast of another publisher. They might be in the outdoors space, maybe the the hunting space, the martial arts space, whatever space we were promoting to. Um, and so uh, we do, I developed kind of processes whereby Tim could lay out uh, the calendar of promotions, the estimated spend and return based on historical performance, run that by me. I could give it a thumbs up, and he could go off and do the sales. So really, marketing and sales was numero uno for Tim. The team actually took turns managing themselves. So Timothy and Marcus were kind of my top guys. Marcus was only about maybe uh, 25, 30 hours a week, but um, – they would actually take turns running the daily meetings and some of the weekly meetings. So the team actually was already kind of managing themselves. And it was quite a small team, so it actually worked fine that way. Mm -hmm. Um, They were running the vast majority of the meetings. But Tim's most important job, Chloe, most important was um, dial in the estimated return on the dollars and time we're going to spend to drive sales and then go hit those numbers. Uh, and, and what I would do is I would double check what the game plan was, double check what the results were, talk with Tim about strategy, but then go let him make all the decisions again. So by the time we sold, you know, he was spending well over $40,000 uh, a month of company money on, on advertising entirely by himself without my intervention uh, or, or anything along those lines. And that was really re- a requirement in order to convince a buyer to pay 90% down uh, in, in cash on, on, a, on a business. Well, Dan, there's about 20 things I want to dive into, but I'm going to stick to what <laughs> to what I think the audience are going to find most useful. So yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Thanks for running us through that because that that was just like super super useful to understand where the business was at, at the point of sale. What I now want to really okay. really 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 focus on is how you got it so big because what I'm taking from what you've said so far is that. You'd experimented with one business. You'd learned some things you really wanted to stay away from, like big payroll um, and physical yeah. locations. 
But also a big driving factor in this business was what you wanted to do next, which you've alluded to a couple of times, the AI business that you're working on in Silicon Valley, and that there was definitely an end point to this. So I think that's something really, really important for our listeners to understand is that you had such clarity with this, such a good reason to hit those numbers to get that exit that you know, we'd, I think we'd all like to know how you managed to actually turn that into a reality. Big, big time. Yeah. Do you, do you want to go into kind of, I think dashboard and then team management are kind of the big things here. Do you want me to kind of riff on the major points? Yeah. Let, let's riff on the major points and uh, let's start uh, with team management. Cause you were just, just uh, touching in on yes. that. So if that makes You're sense right, to right. you. It completely does. Um, there's a, and I know this is for later in your interview, uh, you talk about books, but there's a book called Scaling Up uh, by Vern Harnish, um, which is, is, was an interesting book for me because it talks about a lot of case studies of companies that have gone public in very large nine-figure businesses, uh, some of which were in e-commerce or in, in all kinds of different spaces. Um, and they, they talk about one of the sections in there is about sort of execution and, and kind of um, the rhythm of meetings and of check-ins on stats and whatnot within a fast-growing company and what's required. And we were more than doubling every year. We, we should actually be in the Inc. 500 uh, for 2016's numbers just based on growth. I don't know if the new buyers are going to stay in the Inc. 500, but uh, when I was at the helm, even running my other business at the same time, I, I got there. Um, and uh, when you're growing quickly, Things are weird because things are changing a lot. You have to be pretty well dialed into your numbers. So in terms of team management, um, the big things that I got away from scaling up, and I would encourage people to read it if they're interested in growing a, a business either quickly or, or uh, quite a large business, which is what the book is about, um, is uh, quarterly meetings. Um, and the way that they describe quarterly meetings is really determining kind of the strategic objectives, basing those around what your annual sales goals are. So um, you know, uh, in the January meeting, we would take two days and we would determine not only the projects we wanted to get done within the quarter, but the hard numbers we would want to hit within the year. Mm-hmm. And the important thing here, Chloe, is we would do this with the whole team so that the team would all be able to use their kind of mental antennae to say, hmm, is that a realistic goal or not? So uh, is that something that we could do or not? Yeah, go ahead. So I'm, I'm guessing this is your full-time, empl- your, your kind of employees and those key freelancers that you have. And you, yep, those, and you, and you all yep, headed time. to one physical location to do this? Yeah, actually for, for quarterly meetings, uh, Chloe, yes, uh, we actually did. So nobody was ever in the same room except for in quarterly meetings. But I would fly out from the West Coast and I would, you know, buy a bunch of pizzas and get everybody together in a room at a hotel. There's always or pizza. We could <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's always pizza. So that was one of the fun things about it. I actually had – the quarterly meetings are one of my favorite things. I, I really I really liked the guys I worked with, and so I was, I was lucky that it was kind of like a party time. We got together. But, um, yeah, annual we would – um, set our anchored benchmarks, which were really, what do we want to be doing for revenue and for profit? And for, for me, uh, Chloe being, you know, knowing I'm, I'm eventually going to be, be out here, you know, doing the, the real startup thing. I knew I was going to need to, if I could sell for, for seven figures, which is luckily what we did. So in order to do that, we would need to grow and grow quickly. So <laughs> we'd set aggressive, um, numbers based goals, uh, you know, what do we want to be doing for top line? What do we want to be doing for profit? How many recurring uh, monthly members does that mean we'll have to have? Yada, yada. So that's annual. It's kind of like where are our numbers benchmarks? And then every quarter we would determine the projects and focus areas that are most likely to drive 
those uh, those numbers. Now, the, the biggest, most important thing, and luckily I did this off the bat, and I probably wouldn't have if I didn't read the book, is to have the whole team, prep the team with homework, have the whole team show up with ideas about what those key focus areas are. Then not only do you get more of a sense of ownership because people feel like they contributed, but you actually do get better ideas you could come up with yourself. So even my guy who's working 20 hours a week just doing customer support, um, he's also seeing a lot of issues with marketing that, that uh, people are replying to him about because he's in the inbox. So he's able to kind of bring up a bunch of projects we wouldn't have thought of. So quarterly and, and like annual goal setting and, and full day quarterly meetings for project determination with the whole team is like an exciting brainstorm activity, um, really essential for, for growth. Um, the other really quick thing I'll just touch on, yeah, and cool. you can pepper me with questions. Sweet. Um, the other quick thing I'll, I'll touch on is we had daily uh, meetings that were very quick, just what did you do yesterday, what are you working on today, and are you blocked anywhere? Do you need help or support from anybody else on the team? So we would go through that whole loop with all you know four or five key members of the team uh, in the mornings. Now, by the time I sold the business, I was not there for most of those meetings. I was letting the team run themselves. But in the, in the earlier days, I was there for all those quick daily meetings, um, and each Monday, uh, Chloe, we would look over our metrics dashboard. So we would have all the key stats for sales, refunds, merchant accounts, customer support, um, uh, monthly active subscribers, um, return on advertising spend, all the key drivers of our financial goals, the goals we set in the year, we would look over as a team top to bottom for about 40 minutes, talk about the details, talk about what changed and see what kind of steering and direction we needed to take based on that. So, um, our goal setting and our metrics was once a week, uh, very quick daily touches, but the annual and the quarterly goals really juiced the energy and kind of set the frame of projects that we weren't just doing busy work. We were working on what we needed to do to get from you know 100 grand to 150 grand, 150 grand to 200 grand a month uh, in, in that recurring revenue that was ultimately so important in getting an exit. So those were kind of the meeting regimens that eventually became things that the team could run themselves. And I can't take credit from that. I took that from a book uh, that a bunch of other very successful companies used well before I ever uh, read about it. But th that's the basics. Let me know what you want to know about. Nice. Well, I think you just did a phenomenal job of explaining that. And, um, and in my case, you're preaching to the converted. But I know that a lot of nice. our listeners will also have been going, oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yes, I need to be doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to add a book, actually, to uh, which will which may help people with this, which is the and I always get the words wrong in this. It is the 12 week year. I got it right that time, which huh. is all it's by um, a couple of guys who looked at powerful teams and how they mainly in the sports area and then brought it into the business world and it is all about the quarterly planning and getting the team together so um so anyone out there listening who wants to get to get that organized and i highly recommend you do then um then have a read of scaling up by Vern harnish and the 12 week year by Moran and Lennington. I'm reading that at distance so if i got that wrong <laughs> sorry it's all squinting at your bookshelf yeah. right now okay Okay, so Dan, I'm going to jump on into dashboards and the rigor around sure. the numbers now because you touched on when you were talking about how you were freeing up Tim to get on with things and giving yes. him the systems to do it. And you touched on it when you were saying about those Monday meetings where everybody's looking at the dashboard and those quarterly meetings when you're setting those goals together so everyone's got that ownership. But for you, was it, you know, because I know a lot of people out there struggle with like endless dashboards and 20 sets of reports yes. and losing a week each yep. month to reporting. How did you, 
well actually let's let you riff but those are my thoughts just to set you off yeah it is i will say this um just like everything in a business uh you're gonna have to kind of build the train while you ride the train and Mm -hmm. in in the case of metrics um i found that metrics very rarely uh is like a hey let's determine what we need to track Let's track it, and then, man, it'll be way easier to run the business. It doesn't quite work like that. <laughs> it's almost that good, but it's it's really not quite that good. What what ends up happening is you think hard as a team. If you if you do it right, I think um, you think hard as a team about what you believe to be the core drivers, what you believe to be the core numbers you need to keep in front of you in order to calibrate your actions to meet your annual goals. Uh, so uh, what are the numbers that will help us calibrate our actions to meet our, our num- numerical goals? Um, and, and then you come up with some initial numbers uh, and you quickly learn uh, a couple things. You learn wh- which numbers you're so unsure about because you, your data sources you realize are really horrible um, and, and like you, you need a better rigor around how to get those numbers. Mm-hmm. So you find out which ones are flubby numbers and you need to shore up how you're doing the reporting, you know. Uh, exactly at midnight, we need the system to export this exact thing because if we do it at 12.03 and the recurring billings come through right after midnight, yeah, you know, whatever. So you find out where your flubby numbers are. And you also find out what numbers end up being totally non-actionable and non-important and what other numbers you need. So um, by by taking a good first crack, um, all you do is give yourself something to iterate off of. Uh, And the, the way that we did it, um, more or less, Chloe was kind of figure out, hey, uh, for growth and for profitability, so two two different goals, when you have the goal of selling your business, unless you have strategic buyers, which in our case, uh, unfortunately, there really weren't any strategic buyers. It was going to be a purely financial buyer who bought our business. So, Dan, could you just quickly um, explain was, for the audience what a strategic buyer is? Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So, uh, sorry about that. So, a strategic buyer would be someone who purchases your company for uh, for some sort of tactical end in their own business. So for example, let's say I'm a, uh, let's say I'm a software company that helps, um, uh, like big, large enterprises, um, manage databases or something like that. Uh, hypothetically, I might go out and buy a 20 person company that does, um, kind of, uh, uh, like internal file sharing for like big businesses, like some, some other enterprise functionality. I might want to just buy that to tack it onto my offering because I think it'll give me an edge in sales because I think it'll help improve retention. Right. So notice I wasn't just talking about, um, I'll be able to sell it and make more money. I'm talking about enhancing, uh, some other facet of my business. So I'm not just buying it based on its revenue, I'm buying it based on how it will be able to enhance my existing business. Now, normally when you have strategic buyers, you'll actually be able to get you know, a, a pretty sizable exit. A lot of the time they're going to be paying more than they would purely for your multiple of profits. Um, in, in our case, and, and honestly for most businesses, there were no uh, strategic buyers, which I, I unfortunately learned you know, a, year, <laughs> a year and a half into the business, um, which it is what it is. I w- would have liked to, to double the size of the exit, but I uh, can't turn back the clock now. So, um, so because I realized it was going to be a financial buyer, we needed to have uh, firm 
consistent profitability in addition to growth, which which often don't go together because it costs money uh, to make money. And when you grow, you know, when you two x your business, two two and a half, three x your business every year, um, often you know your margins get thinner and thinner because you're you're dumping that money into acquisition, which we were. Uh, but we needed to also hit profit as well. You know, mm-hmm. twenty twenty five percent to the bottom line with a lean team is really what I was shooting for. Um, and so we had those as goals as well. So, hey, growth and profit, what are half a dozen things that are going to be critical to make sure that we can ensure both of those? What are those damn numbers? Brainstorm as a whole team, come together with those numbers, put them out on the table, uh, start with those, and then every week look at them and figure out kind of over time, take notes as we're doing the meetings, hey, which of these numbers is kind of flubby? Which of these numbers needs a lot more context with more numbers? Um, and which of these numbers are useless and we should either leave it to the customer service guy to look at it by himself or just not even include it altogether because nobody cares. Um, so, uh, so it, it was kind of an iterative process, if you will. So we're talking the, the, those six-ish numbers which are going to help you hit the profit and growth. We're talking about things like email list growth and number yep. of affiliates you've got on board. Would it be that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you some examples. Oh, so cool. uh, we'll paint paint a picture of these. So we look at uh, revenue that week broken out by kind of product category. So how much came from upsells, how much came from front end sales, how much came from back end recurring billing. Uh, you know, what were our ratios and what was our total number of, of revenue there? Uh, what was the refunds and how were its ratios broken out across those three categories uh, I told you? Mm-hmm. Um uh, yeah, what was the acquisition to the email list in terms of list growth or shrinkage? Um, and then what was the engagement uh, of the email list itself as well? So you know, w- what was the churn certainly, but what were the open rates and click-through rates aggregately uh, across across the week? And we were able to, to go into our email systems and get more granular, but high level every week, what was our average open, average click that's letting us know kind of globally how well uh, we're doing? So those were, uh, and then also, you know, uh, how many monthly subscribers we have? So, how many people are on recurring billing right now? Hey, by the end of this month, we've got to get to, you know, two thousand five hundred people paying us fifty bucks a month here. Uh, you know, we got another two hundred to go. Uh, we see that in front of our face every single week, uh, and we know kind of what what sort of actions we need to take. So, th- those are sort of some examples of what would be what and what ended up being actually just a Google spreadsheet because the APIs for Infusionsoft are not very well developed. Um, what just ended up being a Google spreadsheet of stats uh, on the weekly. Okay, cool. So um, I think I, I think kind of for me, the key takeaways there are really making sure you're, you're trying to condense those numbers and that you understand that the numbers you come up with in year one are probably not the numbers you're going to be focusing on, you're right. on by year four. You're totally right. Okay, cool. Well, yep. I'm going, because I, I, again, I could like dive into so many things, but... We've already reached the 30 minute mark. So I'm going to take us into the top tips because I think we've probably given the listeners enough to send their heads spinning already anyway. So it's time for the top tips round. Okay. I love this section because it gives me and our listeners some really quick ideas for taking our businesses to the next level. Now, Dan, first up is the book top tip. If everyone listening to the podcast agreed to take Friday off and read a book to make their business better, which book would you recommend? Oh man, I, I already mentioned scaling up. I'm such a fanboy of, of, of the book. I mean, I'm not literally a fanboy. I'm exaggerating, but I've, <laughs> I've never read a business book that was so 
uh, helpful for organizing teams. So I would say scaling up by Vern Harnish. Excellent. I like your consistency there. I mentioned it earlier, but it is still my number one tip. How how big a recommendation can you get, guys? Uh, okay, the traffic top tip, which marketing method do you either prize above all others or think doesn't get the press it deserves? Man, um, uh, for us, it was just sponsored email. So who, who already sends a newsletter in front of 200,000 or more of the people you sell to? And how can you? How much money are you willing to pay them uh, to drive clicks to your site based on your conversion rate? If you're in e-commerce, so um, not that many people, even in our space, were using that as kind of the core driver of their company. But that ended up being uh, what we did, um, and I would say it's a, a, a tool worth exploring in, in the marketing repertoire. Excellent. That's good. that's going to get a lot of people thinking. A lot of listeners I know will be going, "Ooh." So, <laughs> of that one. So thank you yeah, for that one, Dan. That was that was our whole business right there. So. Okay, the tool top tip then, maybe a collaboration tool, a social media plugin, a phone app or a way of working. Is there a cool little tool you used to keep your team active day to day? Yeah, I, I Asana. So, always really liked Asana a lot. Uh it was important for all of our weekly goals. It was important for holding our quarterly goals in front of us and also tying kind of who the accountable person was for those quarterly uh, and, and weekly goals. So Asana was the ultimate collaboration tool for us uh, with Science of Skill. I'm a big Asana fan. Um, I think we're yeah, of a mind, it. Dan. I think we're similar. Nice. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, the startup top tip then. If you met someone this weekend who's thinking of starting an e-commerce business, what would be your first tip for them? Man, um, I mean, you know, there's all kind of the psychological assessment stuff like, you know, how bad do you really want it? Do you have to do this? Um, it's much easier to have a job. You know, if, if you if you have to start an online business, uh, like in, in your heart and soul, like you really want to be an entrepreneur, then by all means do it. Um, if you're really, really on the fence, then it, it just generally, I think, too much of a sign that maybe you shouldn't. That would be a first thing. Uh, second thing would just be, uh, understanding first and foremost how big is your addressable market. In other words, how many people probably would buy the kinds of things uh, you're probably going to sell. Make sure that that's at least enough people to put your kids through college. A lot of people pick a niche uh, and a sub-interest that's really cool to them, myself included, by the way. I did this in my early days. Uh, it's really cool to them, but ultimately is not going to be able to make you you know, uh, the kind of monthly revenue you need. So look at your overall addressable market uh, before you start building websites, buying domains, uh, etc. Excellent advice. Well, Master Plan World, you can find those top tips and links to everything else we've been chatting about in today's episode by heading over to ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash podcast, where you'll see links to this show. Now, Dan, before we say goodbye, would you like to let listeners know where they can find you and your business? You can pick which business uh, on the web and social yeah, media. Yeah, sure. Um, if people want to, uh, I actually do still do some writing about kind of marketing automation and marketing in general. So a lot of the dashboard stuff and email stuff, email marketing really was the main driver to get us to uh, multiple millions in, in revenue. I still do writing about that stuff at a website called clvboost.com. That's CLV, like customer lifetime value, clvboost, B-O-O-S-T.com. That's kind of like a blog slash uh, video article site where I uh, kind of write articles about what I've learned and about kind of the lessons we've gone through as we've kind of grown and scaled the company, et cetera. So CLV Boost is one place. You can find me at Twitter, which is just at Dan Fagella, two G's, two L's, D-A-N-F-A-G-G-E-L-L-A. Um, 
And I, I think m- maybe Chloe, for the people that are kind of interested in eventually selling mm-hmm. uh, their business, I, I just recently did kind of a longer blog post uh, on on kind of what the sale process was like and what we had to go through. So if people are going to do that, um, it's the the website for the AI business would be e m e r j so emerge e m e r j dot com slash exit, um, and that's kind of like the story of the sale uh, for people who want to know what's it really look like to get somebody to to pay a million bucks uh, for your company. So. Um, that would be it for me. Cool. And then those who are very intrigued by the AI business, which we have not talked about at all, they can find that out at emerge.com as well, presumably. Yeah, emerj.com, uh, okay. exactly. Cool. Well, um, I'm going to add links to all of that and everything else we talked about today in the show notes. I apologize to all of you in Masterplan World who are now about to lose the rest of your day reading Dan's blogs uh, and watching his videos because I know several of you will be messaging me later to complain about your lack of productivity. Um, But you can find all of those links at ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash podcast or head over to the website, click on the podcast tab or use the search box. Dan, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Um, You have shared so much with us that I know the audience are going to find unbelievably useful. So we really do appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, hey, thank you. Whoa, guys. Well, my head is spinning. I think Dan was just incredibly generous there with his bits and pieces. So um, I think what I may just do is turn this one into a transcript so you can go and grab it from the blog post. You'll be able to get the whole thing so you can print it off, read it, scroll it over it, etc. Um, so yes, yes, I've just decided I'm going to transcript this one so you guys can get it straight off the website because that was just so jam-packed with information. Um, Dan has promised that if there's any questions, he'll answer them. So go and put any questions you've got in the Facebook group at ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash Facebook. Um, and I think kind of for me, the key takeaways there are the the clarity of the vision that he had, that goal. I want to get it so I can sell it for seven figures to really give that clarity of then, right, how are we going to do this? Keeping it lean and finding that that really lean way of managing his team. So those regular meetings, it may sound like an awful lot of hard work, but I've done it in the past when I've had larger teams and gosh, it makes things move so quickly and so much more easily having that rigor of the daily meetings, the regular catch-ups, those Monday meetings where you focus in on, right, where are the numbers? Are we doing what we need to be doing? Having those quarterly meetings where you all get together face-to-face, do have a bit of chill-out time, but also communally decide on what the key projects are to hit the numbers over the coming time periods. Phenomenal um, input there, really. And also take away the fact that you only need maybe six key numbers to be watching to keep yourselves on track, but also that it may take you a little bit of trial and error to get those numbers accurate. Not, um, was it flubbery? I think he said that's a brilliant word. Um, but also it might take you a little while to identify exactly what those numbers are and that they might change over time as methods come in and out. Plus there was that great idea of identifying not just the websites you could advertise on, but also those key email newsletters you could buy yourself some space in. Definitely one to be testing. Well, I think that's all from me today. Oh, apart from to say that the reason we've got Daniel on the show today was because he's a listener, a listener to this podcast who contacted me about his story. Now, if you think you've got something to offer to the to the rest of the listenership, to the rest of the e-commerce master plan world, and you think you'd be a great guest, please do get in contact. You can find all the ways to do that on the website. But anyway, 
let's um let's all have a great week and let's all keep optimizing thank you for listening to the e-commerce master plan podcast find out more at ecommercemasterplan.com